As we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word. Now to the 25th Psalm. It's the 25th Psalm. We'll read together here the entirety of it. That's Psalm 25, beginning at the first verse. Hear once again the infallible and errant word of our God. The Psalm of David. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed, which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thou unto me, and have mercy upon me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. O bring thou me out of my distresses. Look upon mine affliction and my pain, and forgive all my sins. Consider mine enemies, for they are many, and they hate me with cruel hatred. O keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in thee. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all its troubles. Amen. May the Lord bless us from his word as we gather together this evening. Our aim, of course, in this evening hour is to prepare, or really, to begin our work of preparation as a congregation for the sacrament. And our forebears, many of them, and in their own way, used to exhort their congregations to prepare, but to prepare in a very very specific way. They would exhort them to prepare to meet with the Lord in the sacrament as they might prepare to meet with the Lord in death. And the reason why they would exhort their congregations to do so is because they said that the believer should expect no closer meeting with Christ in this life than at the table. And so the ministers of the gospel would urge them to prepare like men and like women who are preparing to meet Christ on the threshold of eternity. And not only, friend, do I tender that exhortation to you this evening, but I would remind you that that kind of exhortation carries with it a certain kind of weight. A weight, really, that we feel, if we take it to heart, 
You see, it's an exhortation that requires something of us that we're not like, well, we're not easily put to exert. It requires of us to come down to really the fundamentals of how we think of ourselves, how we think of ourselves before God. It really urges us to set aside all of the accoutrements, all of the furniture that, we would, that we've acquired for ourselves, the veneer that we've placed upon our walk with the Lord, and to come down to that which is substantial, only that which is lasting. And so we come to our psalm this evening, a psalm that shows us an example of that kind of work. You see, the psalm that we approach here, Psalm 25, is a psalm that shows us a man in affliction. He's a man in the crucible of affliction. And you know, friend, of course, affliction does that work for us, doesn't it? It strips us bare of all of those things that do not last, all of those things that are not substantial, and it brings us back to really the fundamentals. And in Psalm 25, you have that. As the psalmist comes before us, he comes to us as a man who has been stripped bare. He's a man who has experienced all kinds of difficulty. And here, as he comes to us, he has really only two things in his lips. After affliction has shaken him of all kinds of other things, he has two things to bring to us. He has a profession of his own faith, his own assessment of his identity before God, and then he has petitions which he brings before the Lord. A friend, as you read Psalm 25, you'll see here in its entirety, the psalmist goes from one to the other. First of all, he makes a profession of faith. He describes himself as one who lifts his soul to the Lord, verse 1. Then he comes to a series of lines that are bare petition, followed by meditation, petition again, meditation again, concluding then with petition. The man oscillates, as it were, between thinking about himself and then presenting his need before the Lord. And in our text, which is really only the 14th verse of Psalm 25, you have the psalmist moving from petition to meditation. He leaves his own difficulty, and he comes to those truths, those substantial and fundamental truths that he believes at this moment are most important for him. Truths, by the way, that ground his petitions. Truths also that we should expect that also incite his faith. And that truth that we have in the 14th verse is just this. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. And he will show them his covenant. A principle, an axiom that the psalmist holds to after everything else has really been stripped bare. I want us to look at this Friend, as we look at this 14th verse, just briefly, and see, first of all, what the psalmist is aiming at, first and foremost. And that is that idea that's communicated to us here, almost surprisingly, in the word secret. Here you have the psalmist telling us that there is a secret that the Lord has. Now, as you look at the word in the original, it could be translated familiar. It could be translated even intimate counsel, familiar speech. The word secret in the English does it justice. The idea is this is something that is communicated only in the closest proximity, only to those who are closest to you relationally. The secret of the Lord. And so in our English Bibles, you'll find this word translated as it is in Job 19. Job describes, all my inward friends abhorred me. The word inward there is the same word for our text, the word secret. Even put negatively, the psalmist describes 
the counsel of the wicked this way. He says, hide me from the secret counsel, that's our word, of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, that they may shoot in secret, after the perfect. The idea behind this word is very simple. I mean, it is very much encapsulated in our own English word here. It's the idea of something that's not disclosed liberally. It's not something that's shared beyond the confines of one who is close to you, or one whom you trust, one who you keep in confidence. And the psalmist tells us here that the Lord has such secret counsel. He has such intimate counsel. And of course, that begs the question, well, what really is the content of that counsel? What is the secret of the Lord? Well, as you look at Psalm 14, we can't miss that here you have two lines that stand very much in parallel one to the other. And in very much, and it's very much the case that holding these two lines together, we get an answer to that question. What is the content of this secret? What is the content of this intimate counsel? Well, we need to look to the next line. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Here you have the subject, the person who fears the Lord, receiving not only the secret of the Lord, but also the psalmist tells here, it is to he, and to he particularly, that the covenant is shown. You see, we're supposed to take the word secret, or or intimate counsel and covenant as synonyms. The two stand interpreting one another, these two lines. And it shouldn't surprise us, of course, that the psalmist talks about the covenant as God's secret counsel. I mean, friends, just take what we thought about last last midweek. Zechariah 6.13. What is the covenant referred to there as? The covenant is called nothing less than the counsel of peace. Or take the apostles' words that we read from Ephesians 1. When he's speaking about that which is the foundation of the Christian's adoption, he says it this way. He calls this, this thing the counsel and mystery of God's will and of his good pleasure. And it's this, as Ephesians 1 holds out to us, that has been revealed to Christians in the face of Christ. Nothing less than the counsel and mystery of God's will and good pleasure. The scripture, and we could go on from there, but the scripture describes the covenant of grace as God's counsel. His eternal counsel, his counsel of peace, as I've just said before, even the counsel and mystery of God's will. We shouldn't be surprised that these two lines then stand in parallel one with the other. Now, friend, if that's the content of the secret, the question, of course, is, well, to whom is it revealed? And that brings us to that second line, or the beginning of the the end of the first line, rather. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him. You can't miss the limitation. The psalmist is very clear. This is not something that is universally true. This is something that belongs to a certain group of people. And the question, of course, is who are those that fear him? As you well know, the word fear here could be easily translated and is elsewhere translated reverence or as honor. But of course, what really stands behind this is these are those who truly, from the heart, worship God. These are those who truly fear the Lord, reverence him really from the inmost and depths of their being. And of course, then, friend, here we're talking about believers. I mean, see how the scriptures speak of us. Those who are believers are those who are called to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Hebrews 12.28 They are those who heed Peter's command. Fear God. They themselves are described as those who submit themselves to one another in the fear of God. Ephesians 5.21 
Christians, these believers are described as those who have the promises, who are called to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Friend, in one sense we're supposed to see this, and really this is the only sense we can take it, that believers are those who are here in view. Believers and believers only have this intimate counsel, this secret of the Lord, the covenant revealed to them in this particular way. Now as we draw back from that, friend, I want you to note before we begin that our focus on Psalm 25 and the 14th verse will really occupy not only tonight, but also both ends of the Lord's day. And it might seem a bit strange that we're focusing purely on one single verse in this whole psalm, but as we look at the 14th verse, I hope that we'll see that really what you have here in our text is nothing less than the crux and bedrock of the entirety of Psalm 25. But even more than that, it really is the foundation of what we were talking about before. Those fundamental aspects of a man standing before God. His identity as he himself should see it, and his identity as the Lord himself conveys it. There are three things in this text, then, that we'll take up. You have, first of all, of course, the secret of the Lord itself. Then, secondly, we have those to whom it is revealed. And then, lastly, we even have, though we won't really see it this evening, even the manner in which that secret is conveyed. But our focus for this evening is particularly just on those to whom the secret is revealed. Just on those to whom this knowledge is given. And friend, I want you to notice, before we go even any further than that, that we can't forget that the inspired penman conveys to us not just the particular identity, the, the, the concrete description of who these people are, but he also supplies for us in himself, as he's writing as the inspired penman, even an example of those who are described in verse 14. What do I mean by that? Friends, if you look at this psalm, and you look at particularly the way the, Psalter, the psalmist describes himself, what you find here is he sees himself very much numbered among those who are described in verse 14. What do I mean? Friend, I want you to notice what he cries out here in the fourth verse. He says, in this case, show me thy ways. That's his petition. But as you come to verse 9, he then moves to meditation. Who are those who will be shown the Lord's ways? The meek, he says, will the Lord teach his way. The meek. And then you come to the 12th verse. What man is he that feareth the Lord? There's our word. Him shall he teach in the way he shall choose. You see, friend, if the psalmist doesn't include himself in the 12th verse, then the petition of the 4th verse is groundless. He sees himself numbered among those who fear the Lord, to whom the Lord will show his way. But then necessarily, friend, he sees himself as one to whom, according to our text, the Lord will make the secret known. The one who will be shown the Lord's covenant. Now, friend, what we have here then is a cross-section of the man, the man who fears the Lord, the man to whom this promise pertains. And this is, this is an inspired cross-section this is setting before us not just a picture of a particular man, but as we look at the psalm in its entirety, we're to understand that this is really the exemplar in many ways for how we're supposed to see ourselves. This is really a cross-section of the true believer as he stands before God. 
You see, what I didn't mention before was that Psalm 25 is an acrostic. Each line begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And why is it that the Hebrew scriptures in the Psalter and elsewhere do that? Well, manifestly, friends, the purpose of that is to show us one very basic theme. And that is that the principles of this particular body of literature are fundamental, foundational to how we think or how we should think about ourselves and about the Lord. These are foundational to piety. And so we shouldn't forget here that in this moment, as the psalmist shows us his own heart, as it were, and the Spirit of God inspiring him to do so, we should understand here that this has vast implications for ourselves. Now, friend, as we do so, that brings us to our theme, and that is just this, that, that those who know the secret of the Lord, that is his covenant, they have a unique disposition, as we see it in the psalmist in Psalm 25. As you look at this psalm, you'll notice that the psalmist presents his disposition, his character to us, by threading together themes that we are not terribly unfamiliar with. Themes that we looked at, for instance, last Lord's Day evening when we came to Psalm 143. Themes, however, that in many ways don't necessarily lend themselves to a kind of connection. I mean, these are the themes of affliction, sin, pardon, and deliverance. I mean, see it, how does the psalm conveys it? Affliction, I am desolate and afflicted. Pardon, forgive all my sins. Cleansing, teach me thy ways. Deliverance, he shall pluck up my feet out of the net. The idea is that affliction has driven the man, as we said before, to think most basically about himself and his position before the Lord. Affliction has been the catalyst, but what has been the fruit of this kind of heart searching? What has been the fruit or what has really been the effect of this cross-section? Well, friend, what's striking is, though the man is afflicted severely, the two prevailing themes are sin and salvation. Those are the two things that when you lay this man bare, as it were when you flay him with affliction, these are the two things that his heart immediately is inclined to reflect upon. This is where his mind goes. This is his baseline, so to speak. And so, friend, I want us to take up that just very, very briefly. These two themes that the psalmist focuses upon, and to see them as they are, really cross-sections of the believer. Those who will have this covenant revealed to them. Those who have the secret of the Lord. And so, first of all, that theme of sin. Now, friend, as you look at this, I want you to notice that this is something that really runs from the very first to the last verse of the psalm. Sometimes implicitly, but at several times explicitly as well. And this shows us that this is a man who minds sin more than he does suffering. I mean, I want you to just think about that for a moment. He minds sin more than he minds the current affliction that he's facing. It's a striking thing, isn't it? He's not merely trying to get out of pain. His first interest here is not merely to get out from underneath the suffering that he knows. His mind gravitates immediately to affliction, to sin, rather to sin. Than it does to affliction. Well, but friend, you see here then a vast difference between our psalmist and the hypocrite. I mean, take for instance what Israel described as in Isaiah 42 God hath poured upon Israel the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and hath set him on fire round about. Yet, says the prophet, he knew it not, and it, and it burned him. 
yet he laid it not to heart. Or take what the prophet says in Hosea of the same people. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yet gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. And the pride of Israel testifieth to his face, and they do not return to the Lord their God, nor seek him for all of this. I want you to notice, friend, as you look at Psalm 25, you find really the antithesis of what I've just read to you. You find a man who is quite sensitive to the Lord's dealings with him. And in this case, as we look at Psalm 25, you see a man who does feel the chastening hand of God, and he is so sensitive to these things that it does drive him to repentance. It does drive him to reflect on sin. And so he's very much more like repentant than Ephraim. You remember how Ephraim is presented to us in Jeremiah. There Ephraim cries, Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, turn thou me, and I shall return. For the Lord, for thou art the Lord my God. After this I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, I was confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. That, friend, far much more resembles our psalmist. A man sensitive to God's dealings, a man who's sensitive to sin. But briefly, friend, as we look at this, we see here a picture of the Christian. We see the picture of a Christian who, as he reflects upon his sin, he makes much of his sin. I want you to see this. As you look through Psalm 25, it's a prevailing theme. In fact, it might surprise you how specific he is. Take just for a moment what the psalmist says in verse 7. Words that are probably quite familiar to us. There he says, remember not the sins of my youth. Remember not the sins of my youth. Now, friend, we need to understand that he's not, he's not speaking exclusively as though he were neglecting his more recent transgressions. What is he saying? Well, he's saying the very same thing that we sang in Psalm 51. There, of course, the psalmist tells us that he was shaken in iniquity and in sin did his mother conceive him. The idea is, is that the psalmist is pointing to the fact that throughout his whole life, from the moment of conception, he has been a transgressor. He has been in sin. Friend, the point that the psalmist is drawing down here is that he is, as he reflects on the duration of his sin, he sees that it's prevailing from his first to his present moment. Sin. I mean, friend, it's the very same thing that you have in Jeremiah 3. We lie down in our shame, says the prophet, and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. What is the believer doing here? He's saying there has been no moment that I can point to. No moment from the moment that I came into this world to the present where I am not defiled. Where I'm not tainted with iniquity. Where I'm not, where it's not possible for me to say that I, I was not a rebel. That I was not engaged in sin. This is how the believer thinks about sin. He meditates much on its duration in his life. He points back even to his inception of life and he says, I find it there. And friend, he's persuaded. He's persuaded, you have to understand this, in his inmost being. That even his best moment then was stained. Even his best moment was tainted with sin. And how contrary is this again to the hypocrite? Isaiah 58, they cry, Wherefore have we fasted, 
and thou seest not. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? In other words, these ones are crying out to God, there was a time whenever I was more holy, there, there was a time whenever I had done right before you. Take the hypocrites in Matthew 7. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Friend, contrast that once again with our psalmist. He refuses to appoint, he refuses to point to a single moment, a single moment in which he has been free from sin. He stresses the fact that from start to finish, he has been a rebel. The law cries, I knew. The law cries with regard to you and with me. I knew that thou wouldest deal very treacherously and wast called a transgressor from the womb. The law cries to you and to me, you are estranged from the womb. You go astray as soon as you are born, speaking lies. My friend, what is the Christian's response to this? Here's his response. My sins and faults of youth, do thou, O Lord, forget. He acknowledges what the law of God has always said. From the beginning, I have been a transgressor. His best moments confessedly defiled. But the second thing that the psalmist points to, and we'll note note this only very briefly, is that what you have in verse 11. Not only does he remark something regarding sin's duration in his life, but in the 11th verse he shows us something of its magnitude. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is grave. It is grave. The man here offers no excuse to God. He offers no opportunity for any to say or to explain away his transgression. He simply lays before the Lord the magnitude of his sin. Well, like I said, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I want to point out here the third thing that we find in this psalm with regard to sin, and that is its aggravation. This is a a bit more subtle. But let me direct your attention to the verse just before, verse 10. It says here, All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, unto such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. That's quite straightforward. But then you come to the 11th verse that I just read. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is very great. The question is, what is the connection between verses 10 and 11? What's the line of coherence, so to speak? Well, I think Kelvin is rather helpful here. He writes here that the psalmist notes that God is kind and faithful to those who serve him, that is, those who are in the covenant. Now he examines his own heart and acknowledges that he cannot be accounted of their number unless God grant unto him the forgiveness of his sins. Allow me to paraphrase even further. The psalmist is saying here that the Lord is gracious to those who are in the covenant of grace who hold to the means, who hold to the duties, who hold to that covenant love. And then you come to the 11th verse, and what is the psalmist saying? Very pointedly, says Calvin, he cannot be counted of their number. That is, those who are members of the covenant of grace, who fulfilled every covenant obligation. Those who have made use perfectly of the means of grace offered in that covenant. In other words, friend, he is saying very pointedly, he has sinned not only against the covenant of works, 
But he has sinned against the covenant of grace by, by neglecting its means. He sinned against the covenant of grace by shirking those duties. He sinned against the covenant by spurning covenant love. That's Calvin's point, and I believe that is the point of verse 11. You see, friend, our psalmist is a man then who knelt at such questions. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? There, the Lord's speaking to people who are part of the covenant community. And what does the Lord say? What more could I have done? The Christian melts at such a thought. What iniquity have you found in me that you have gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? Friend, how pathetic does our psalmist weep? Should he hear those words? What iniquity have you found in me that you have gone far from me? And, and friend, can the softened heart hear even these words without trembling? O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? You see, friend, those questions that I just read to you, those don't come as God as he stands, the Lord of the covenant of, work, of, co- the covenant of works. This is God as he comes to us through the covenant of grace, speaking to those who, have, who are in the covenant, at least externally, and know what he says to them. How, how have I wearied you that you've forsaken me? How is it that you found anything in me that was lacking, that you needed to find another lover? And friend, if you don't think that the Lord even speaks to genuine believers that way, I just encourage you to read from 2 Samuel 7, sorry, 2 Samuel 8 rather, the Lord's dealings with David through Nathan. Had you asked of me any more, I would have given it thee, says the Lord. You see, friend, the Christian not only looks at the duration of sin, not only does he look at its magnitude, but he also looks at its aggravation. He's a man who's conscious that he's sinned against love. He's sinned against light. And he's melted by it. But secondly, and lastly as we close, we come to that second theme that he meditates on, and that is the salvation of God. A friend, the man here has reflected upon sin, and so as he sees himself chastened by the Lord, he's recognizing that his chastening is just. The Lord is pursuing him, in other words, with cause. But it's important for us to keep in mind as well that as you see this, you see a man who's making very staggering prayers. I mean, take verse 2. Let me not be ashamed. He's just a man who's proclaimed himself to be a sinner. Yet he says here, let me not be ashamed, verse 2. Then verses 6 and 7, remember thy tender mercies, remember not my sins. Again, verse 17, bring thou me out of my distress, affliction that was brought to me because of my sin. Bring me out of that distress, he cries. And then most of all, verse 11, friend, perhaps one of the most staggering verses in all of Scripture. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is very great. You're supposed to recognize here, friend, as staggering as these are, this is the reasoning of a man who fears the Lord. The reasoning of a man who will have the secret of the Lord revealed to him. And what you can't miss here is as we see him, he is a man who simultaneously repudiates any self-righteousness and at the very self-same time looks for pardon. 
He does both. And this is how he deals with the Lord. Now friend, as you look at verse 11, and we could spend so much more time here, we simply don't have it, but but as you look at verse 11, just walk through those two lines that are there with me. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity. For thy name's sake, as though the Lord's name was at stake, if the man was not pardoned. That's the sense of the text. Friend, that's a staggering thing for a man to say after he's confessed that from the very beginning of his life he's been a transgressor. But he goes even further, doesn't he? What's the argument that he uses? For it is very, for it is great. Or you should even translate it there, for it is very great. What strange logic is that? That the man goes to God pleading on on, on the basis of God's name. That he would receive pardon. And what's his argument? His argument is out of, the base, out, of the, out of the severity and out of the magnitude of his sin. It's a strange kind of logic, isn't it? Well, but you see, friend, even the unbelieving Jew struggles with this text. Because even Rashi, a man who, defi- who, who reviled the doctrine of free grace, had to say here... The psalmist was asking great things of God because he needed great pardon. You see, what the psalmist is doing here is he is invoking God and God's name alone. And even setting before the Lord the greatness of his sin and saying out of the greatness of that mercy, pardon. Not because the sin was small. He repudiates the thought. Not because he has done any kind of righteousness to counteract his guilt. He mentions none. Simply for the Lord's name's sake. Pardon. Friend, this is nothing less than a man who is looking to free grace. To that work of grace that was self-determined from all of eternity. That work of grace that only comes to sinners freely. Without money and without price. And friend, this is what the Christian eyes. By faith, the Christian expects and longs for free grace alone. I won't say much here, but just note, friend, that our psalmist, this man to whom the secret of the Lord will be revealed, is a man who is contented that all the world would be, would be, would be guilty before God. Please, with a statement, let him that glorieth glory in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Please, to cry, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and a blessing. None else, only his name exalted, because all was only of free grace. All was only out of God's free benevolence. You see, friend, he's pleased, in other words, to take the gospel and that alone. He will say much about his sin. But if he has any mercy, any grace, it is only because of the Lord. And friend, that leads us to that question, doesn't it? Are we a people who are so described? Are we the people of Psalm 25, verse 14? And to answer that question, there are really only two further questions we need to ask. And the first question is, do we sense a necessity for free grace? 
The soul that knows something of the duration of sin, something of its magnitude, and something of its aggravations, will certainly, certainly know something of the need for the freeness of this grace. They'll be chased by this sense to Christ and Him alone. Repudiate their best moment. Decry their best prayer. Confess there is nothing good, even, even in that moment that others might see as good. Nothing good. And that drives them to free grace alone. The second test of sorts is, do you see the beauty of it? Do you see the beauty of the gospel way of saving sinners? You see, friend, in verse 11, it's for thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great or very great. In other words, friend, this is all that he desires. He sees in the gospel the glory of God manifest. He sees that as he himself is abased, the God whom he loves is exalted. And that's what pleases him. Are we pleased, friend, to lay low before the Lord? Are we pleased to say before the Lord, there is nothing good, even in our best? And to have only his name uplifted. But beloved, if such is the case, then understand that the promise of verse 14 is for you. The promise of verse 14 belongs to those who fear the Lord in this way. And that is especially pertinent, friend, as we think about the sacrament. I mean, the word sacrament originally does mean the word mystery. It means something secret. Uh, And taken in the right way, not the way that many others might, but... Taken in the right way, the sense is there is a special and intimate way in which the covenant is made known to such as to those who fear the Lord. And friend, that's the promise that's held out to those who hold to him by faith. Not just a knowledge external of the covenant, not just a knowledge intellectual, but an intimate acquaintance with the truths of the gospel. That is what is held out to you. If you are described here in the 14th verse. But friend, the exhortation that arises from this text then is this. If we are to prepare a rite for the sacrament. If we are to prepare a rite for anything. Even so much as to pray. Friend, the only way that we are going to do so is to follow the pattern of the psalmist. And that is to cast ourselves low before Christ. As Christ is clothed in the gospel. This is the psalmist's method. And friend, there is no other way that we can prepare our right to meet the Lord. Because this is the Christian as he's laid bare. This is the Christian as all the accoutrements and all of the fig leaves are removed. It is simply himself, naked, holding only to Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Friend, as we come this Lord's Day... May that be us. As a congregation, friend, may we think much of sin that it might drive us in this way to Christ. Friend, as we think about sin, then also may we also think and relish in the freeness of that grace that is tendered to us, even signed and sealed in the sacrament. Amen.